0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Welcome to May and I hope you had a great May Day. And welcome also to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today we'll find out what Honest History is with David Stevens, who is the editor of the website honesthistory.net.au and co-author of the 2017 book On History. The Australian Government's release of the Declassified 2023 Defence Strategy Review. Dr Sue Wareham is one of the increasing number of Australians alarmed at the way Australia is heading for war and neglecting citizens to pay for it. Marxist historian and author Humphrey McQueen won't be watching the coronation in England. Instead, he's looking for a future without a monarchy. PhD candidate and journalist, Sasha Gillies-Lacarcus. A history of a small South American nation of Ecuador today. We know it as the country which supported our Julian Assange. But he's back today. That's Mr. Kevin Healy. He's had a week and you can be listening today on Analog, 8.55am, digital, 3CR or online, 3cr.org.au, either streaming or on podcast.
2: A weak journalist that when big supremo Anthony Albing-Uzi solemnly celebrated honour train killing and the merchants of death best we forget day, telling us we want no more deaths and lives destroyed by train killing, achieved through policies aimed at a peace, stability and prosperity in our region uh how do we achieve all that anthony peace stability prosperity we are committed to spending trillions on making our very 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 close friend the us of the un of the us of the world's merchants of death prosperous 38 million a day on nuclear submarines alone peace love and us of nuclear subs what uh, things that kill things that train kill how will that achieve peace and stability it will keep the US off happy. As the wall to wall excitement coverage of Train Killer Day, True Blue Aussies values, freedom, prosperity, were assured honed through mass slaughter after landing on the wrong beach in Turkey in a military disaster, which may microcosmically represent our values, as the coverage settled, we could look forward to mass non-coverage of May Day, unless some overseas May Day celebration turns violent as the uh, police keeping law and order get stuck into the marches, the, into the celebration, and our media can point out how violent were those workers who so upset the poor coppers. Because class warfare is not real warfare. Like the frontier wars, the resistance and slaughter of indigenous defenders is not real warfare, not real capitalist warfare. Although some might suggest class warfare is also capitalist warfare, exploiting exactly the same pool of cannon fodder. But thankfully we know that is just plain wrong, cannot be. Because the barons of the greatest little economic order of them all and their acolytes assure us there is no such thing as class in our classless society. That those who refer to class struggle or class differences at all are guilty of class envy. Uh, They're guilty of raising, you know, like class envy. One of the acolytes, Caring Business Class Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Constable Peter Duffer would alert us. Ignoring, hard to believe, a brilliant man like Pete would ignore anything. Ignoring the minor fact that acknowledging class envy acknowledges there is class of which to be envious. So because there is no class... Um, warfare. The class that knows there is no class knows there is no commemoration of class warfare to commemorate. So there is no need to give oxygen to the disruptive fallacies of class struggle perpetuated by lazy avaricious workers and evil unions. Well, well some lazy avaricious workers. Thankfully, the esteemed practitioners of the Greatest Little Economic Order have convinced much more than some workers that the Greatest Little has their interests at heart, is there just for them. Which it kind of is, because it wouldn't be there without them. Amid all the celebration of non-class warfare, anniversaries of many a slaughter contributing to our values, the media, the mainstream media that is, couldn't squeeze in a mention of the 10th anniversary of the Rana Plaza tragedy which murdered and injured thousands of clothing workers in Bangladesh. Another slaughter proving the caring business class argument that there is no such thing as class difference or class struggle which explains why 10 years later no one has been charged or punished on the one hand or compensated on the other c left to their own devices or lack of all treated equally in a classless society free enterprise and as we glorified train killing having for instance to delay turning on the footy until bounce the ball time to avoid the nauseating pre-game train killer crap Let's contemplate that left, right, left isn't just train killer marching, but reflects many a socialist politician well, using left pretty loosely, who claim to be left when they seek election, march right as right once elected, hop along on their right foot, then rediscover their left bit, their very limited left bit, when they retire or get thrown out. Like Jenny Mackling the poor poorer, who we were told was on the left as she threw single parents, mostly mums and their kids, onto the poverty scrap heap, and now says they should be returned to where they were before she reduced them to poverty. See, left, right, left, with, as we say, the proviso, very limited left. And what a nuisance for then big supremo Julia Gauleyhard that people uh, keep reminding us that Jenny and Julia sold out single mums on the very day Julia made her misogyny speech. Not that the government can afford to go all the way back, nor can it afford to lift old bludgers out of poverty, as we have to find that 38 million a day for 30 years for U.S. of subs to protect the U.S. of from evil China, plus all the trillions more on the Merchants of Death merchandise announced last week to ensure peace, stability and prosperity. War is peace. Stability is war. Prosperity is the Merchants of Death. So the poverty-stricken can feel peaceful, stable and prosperous knowing their little spot in their favourite gutter will be safe. Uh, Well, until the authorities move them on. We also know the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, is also proving a strain on the defence budget, but here at least there is good news. Private equity investors are pouring money into the NDIS scheme, sensing an opportunity for outsized returns after profits in the sector rose more than 29% on average every year since 2018. Goody, goody. All that government spending is not going to waste on non-essentials like, well well, say, people with disabilities. As one investor gloated, it is an industry that has got a lot of people's attention in terms of sheer spend from the government 35 billion this year alone, and the market is evolving quickly. See? People with disabilities are an industry, a market, and with the magnificent benefits of the super efficiency of the private sector, isn't it hard to believe costs are exploding or that, what a silly, silly thought, there could be the odd saving if the government ran the scheme itself, bypassed the private sector altogether. But no, no, that would deprive us uh, us of the efficiencies of the market. Like the efficiencies, the common sense in continuing to imprison and refuse to accept no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people while announcing a need to attract a workforce. Better to spend a fortune imprisoning and refusing, rejecting, and a fortune attracting. The sheer common sense of the greatest little economic order of them all. And a positive, while the government can't afford to afford the destitute, it can find $240 million to build a footy ground for the business elite who run the AFL, almost a whole week of nuclear subs. I'm starting to think the caring business class party elements urging no voice for the terra nullius people are very, very slow in the brain department as what seems a most simple and clear statement is anything but to them. With, speaking of the misogyny speech, former big supremo Tani a bit more for the bosses putting his bib into the issue this week bemoaning, there's so much uncertainty, so much uncertainty an extension of current Supremo Constable Duffer's we need more, you know, like, detail. And through his mental haze of uncertainty, Tiny also bemoaned that anyone opposed to it is placed under suspicion of closet racism. Suspicion of closet racism. Well, no, Tiny, not all. But in certain cases, Tiny, it's not closet. It's there for all to see, overt, barefaced. Oh, and a comment on Barry Humphreys. A whole page of lavish praise by Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head, telling us how Humphreys hated political correctness and had declared the one funeral he'd like to attend would be the Human Rights Commission. He listed the people Humphreys hated and set up, and hate to say it, listener, but it seems to take in most of us. All the more reason why the public purse should pay for his funeral. Exciting news leading up to the big excitement, the big event we're also excited about, the coronation of our head of state. Madame Tussos now has a wax dummy of him and her. Truly beautiful. And I thought, wonder what would result—what result an result IQ comparison between the wax and real versions would turn up can't wait to admire all that train-killer paraphernalia the dole bludging family turns up in on these truly important occasions. Finally, we mentioned last week how Lord Rupert's media outlets highlighted another filthiest rich of, rich of Elon must make money publishing lies and disinformation but not a word of lord rupert himself paying out the biggest defamation settlement ever for lies and disinformation suggesting that for a week or two at least he might just shut up but no this week the whopping sin reported one of the us ob's biggest media companies nbc universal announced its chief jeff shell has left his job after a complaint about his conduct then, the misconduct scandal is the latest to occur at the top of corporate America. They include the departure of bosses such as Steve Easterbrook, the Briton who headed McDonald's, and the founder and former boss of Uber, Travis Cowanick. But Lord Rupert Readers would still have no idea of his own record hush money payment. But of course, there's a big difference. No one at Foxy at Newsbury Limited has resigned. Lies and disinformation, business as usual. Oh, and I'm sure Lord Rupert would love to join in wishing all of us a happy May Day. Good afternoon.
1: And you can hear more of Kevin Healy tomorrow morning on 3CR City Limits. It's at 9am. Worried about the climate crisis, but not sure how to help? Whether you want to make your voice heard in our democracy, help out with local sustainability projects, or hit the streets to protest for change, Climate Carnival has something for everyone. This two-day festival is your chance to meet a range of local climate and environment groups, get the facts on climate crisis, and find out what you can do to make a difference. There'll be talks and workshops, music, comedy, kids' activities, and more. So come to Mycelium Studios in Brunswick East on Saturday 6th and Sunday 7th of May. Make some new friends and find your place in the movement. For more information, look up Climate Carnival on Facebook. Climate Carnival is a 3CR supporter. David Stevens is editor of the Honest History website, honesthistory.net.au and co-editor with Dr Alison Bronowski of the Honest History book, which is published in 2017. I spoke with David recently and began by asking him about that term in general, Honest History. I've always believed that history is written by the victors, not the losers in battles or History or society What does history mean for you?
3: Honest history, we we argued a lot about that ten years ago when we started all this and it's essentially Interpretation that which is based on evidence. I mean all history is interpretation Although because the interpretation can change as the evidence changes as as we know with the frontier wars current stuff that people just didn't recognize that certain things had happened, but now they do to us, ice history is just evidence-based interpretation of a nation's past. People, we got into a terrible argument early on with Brendan Nelson because one of his historians had complained to us that that we were saying that some historians aren't honest which meant I think that historians that he was accepting the complaints from thought that it meant we thought they had their fingers in the till or something nasty but all we said was that, no it's just Evidence, you can, if you've got the evidence, you can prove that black is white and, and white is black. But the, the, the story that historians should be telling is one that's based on the evidence. You can even peddle myths if you like, as long as you know the difference. And the trouble with the sort of stuff that the War Memorial has peddled over the years is they don't know the difference between what's a myth and what's, what's evidence. I mean, the one that, one particular that they have always been supportive of is the story that, um, Mustafa Kemal, our Turkish leader in the 20s and 30s, who'd been at Gallipoli, he said this thing, um, those mothers who weep for their boys, let them know that that we're looking after them in our ground, in our land, and their sons are our sons. He never said it. I mean, there's no evidence he ever said it, but it's lovely words, and people keep repeating it. And we keep saying, we say there's no evidence that he ever said it. And, And there's considerable evidence that, the whole, whole myth, mythical uh, words of Kemal Ataturk um, arose later for Turkish, internal Turkish political reasons. But we even got quite a distinguished historian saying, well, look, unless you can prove he never said it, you know, we'll still talk about it. <laughs> you can never prove, uh, never, but there's pretty good evidence that it arose somewhere else altogether. But anyway, but you know, the other thing that, that we've tried to do is... As we say on the front of our website, I think somewhere it's designed to, we, we set the thing up because we thought people were going to, well, 10 years ago now, in the, the lead up to the, the centenary of Anzac, we could see that people were going to boost that stuff up so much, that Anzac stuff up so much that people particularly younger people would think that there's nothing to our history that isn't connected in some way with war and going off to war and it's inevitable and if you've ever seen our honest history book the, the um, slogan on the front of australia is australia is more than Anjack and always has been and that's what we've tried to to, to push to people and when we see working around at the war the Royal memorial's big building program and the frontier wars when we see people Pushing stuff like that, will'll come back at them and say, "Well, look, the frontier wars happened. you need to recognise that they did. You need to be a bit more um, forceful on what you're doing, and we've sort of noted that Tim Beasley, as the chair of the council, is trying to is trying to um push things along a bit, but I don't think he's quite got the energy. but that is our current big push. We hope it's going to develop later later this year with a, a separate website. Because we we realized we couldn't, we never thought we were going to win the battle against the $550 million building program because it had too many big end of town people behind it like Kerry Stokes and Brendan Nelson wanted a legacy and that was never going to be stopped. But we certainly made it controversial. We made it controversial enough that it's been on the Auditor General's list of potential audits for the last three years. It stays on there. We've normally things drop off the Auditor General's list after a year or two, but it's still there, and we say, good, because there's a lots of dodgy things that happened with that building contract, with that building program, and we, you, you can't... Obviously, from the outside, you don't know all of it, but so that, that campaign, effectively, we recognised we lost it. We basically came at it from the, the point of view that the War Memorial was misusing the, the recent history. So, essentially... We moved on from the from the campaign against the, the big build to a campaign to make sure that they do the frontier wars properly, and that's where that's where we are at the moment. We're trying to say, let's recognise and, and own the history of those wars and do it properly. Whereas what the War Memorial is proposing at the moment is a half baked a half baked operation, which which really doesn't it doesn't give the the frontier wars the dignity and the, and the sort of coverage that they deserve.
1: Can I take you back a few steps, David? You're not trained as a historian. Why this interest in uh, following history?
3: I've, I've, got a PhD, I've got a PhD in political science, <laughs> and my two theses were essentially political history. There was nothing particularly political science fancy about them, but I did a master's thesis on the Curtin and Jeffrey government history of, and a PhD on the... Labour sort of Whitlam to Whitlam to the so the split to Whitlam, which essentially once again was essentially political history. So I probably have never done a historiography course, but I've certainly I think um, shown credentials as a student of history over the last ten years on that on that website. But I think what annoys me about um, now let's let's just leave it at that. That's probably enough to go on with. But I, I think that history is something that isn't that doesn't just belong to people who who have done a phd in 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 a history department it belongs to people who have got an appreciation for evidence who can tell the difference between history and myth and um who are prepared often to stand up to quite vicious criticism from people who have a different a different view i mean frank bonjourno a number of years ago wrote an article about um, Anzac uh, where he said if you don't believe the received view of the importance of Anzac in Australian history you will get shafted quite heavily by people who do believe that sort of stuff so it's it's a it's an area where you, you've got to be um, and some of the criticism that we that we copped from Brendan Nelson when he was still at the Memorial was quite quite vicious and quite un, uncalled for and unfounded but he's a politician, he knows he can bullshit on and people believe
1: <laughs> it. David, who were the others who were with you at the beginning and encouraged each other to look into this issue and do something about it? Essentially,
3: Peter Stanley, Sue Wareham, whom, whom you'll know from other contacts, a fellow called Brendan Kelson, not Brendan Nelson, Brendan Kelson who's now, now no longer with us, but who he was a previous previous director of the War Memorial. Michael Piggott, who was um, a big whirled in the archives. Um, he used to be uh, the archivist at Melbourne University and then was a sort of senior person in, uh, in the Archives Association. Uh, who else? Paul Daly, actually, from The Guardian, has written a lot of stuff for us over the years and been very supportive. Um, Claire Wright... A number, a number of people, it, it's essentially been a small group and we've tried to, you know, get writing and, and contributions from a broad, broader range of people as possible. Um, just recently I was looking again at something that Diane Bell has a, a distinguished um, emeritus, emerita professor from anthropology that she wrote on um, Miles Franklin in Serbia in the First War. So she's written, all, she's written a number of things for us over the years. Um, Alison Bernowski Richard Bernowski have written things for us. So it's, in some ways, if you're going to be nasty, if you were Brendan Nelson, you'd say, oh, it's all the usual pinko suspects. So, so it's, <laughs> it's a little bit more than that, yeah.
1: What do you believe you've achieved so far?
3: I think we've looking again at that War Memorial program, uh, building program, I think we've, established that it is it is controversial it's been opposed by a lot of people it really shouldn't have happened but because of the what we've called the Anzac cloak which is anything to do with Anzac is is not subject to the same sort of accountability and the same sort of criticism as other things it's kind of survived so I think we've got people to recognize that this is a fairly dodgy project it's gone ahead despite a massive public opposition I think a lot of that was because of the, of the noises that we made. I think we've we've also the ice history book sold pretty well for for books of that type, and um, I think we've got people to understand that there are other other ways of looking at Australian history than than the kind of I think I called it somewhere recently um, Anzac centric, excessively masculine. Um, version of our history, and, and that, that's I think we've, which is why it sort of makes it very very obvious for us to get into the frontier wars aspect because it's it's the sort of thing that that, that ANZAC centred history that we've been used to has ignored because it's it's kind of it's much simpler for the people for the the Anzac-ery crowd as we call them to focus on. Um, what happened in Gallipoli in 1915 because you can present it in a a sort of sentimental, sanitised way than to talk too much about what happened at Constant in 1928 or what happened at uh, Mile Creek or Slaughterhouse Creek when Indigenous people were killed in considerable numbers. So, you know, that sort of stuff doesn't... that settlers, police, native police and the War Memorial finally admits military people um, getting stuck into, um, into into Indigenous people kind of doesn't fit that sanitised Anzac type view that the War Memorial pushes out.
1: With your honest history, have you moved away from issues pertaining to war looking at other aspects of Australian history? No,
3: we've always had, I think in the what two thousand and nineteen the sort of Anzac centenary stuff started to wind back and I think if you look on the website you'll see that there's a lot of stuff there. We did a lot of stuff for a while on inequality because there was there were reports coming out every few months from Brotherhood of St Lawrence and different people saying Australia's getting more and more unequal and you know, incomes are, you know, There's a great disparity in incomes and we kept saying, well it's not just income it's wealth, it's inequalities of wealth and after a while we stopped we we didn't bother, we had a sort of special subject on inequality from that four or five years, not familiar with war but but something that we thought was important and we we sort of stopped eventually because we thought no one's taking any notice, there are still reports coming out about inequality in Australia and how it's getting worse income inequality and wealth inequality but um, Let's well, not, you know, <laughs> we'll just we'll just roll a line there and say we've done our best to, to help publicise that. But the the um, First Nations um, things, I think we had a, a special subject running on that for five or six years. That's always been something we've been interested in, even regardless of um, the frontier wars angle, because of because of the number of gaps that there are in the way we treat Indigenous people. I mean, the lack of recognition of the Frontier Wars, we've started to call the commemoration gap. The way we commemorate that is, is so much less than the way we commemorate blokes going overseas in uniform to fight for Queen or fight for great and powerful friends. We've tried to get people to f- to focus on beyond that frontiers Frontier War stuff, to focus on the the gaps that that, that affect um, indigenous people in other ways. So, I think that's that's another one. If you look on the front of the website, even as it is now, there's still there are still hundreds of articles under headings like um, people like us, which is the one where the, the indigenous um, material tends to go. Um, ruling ourselves, we've, we've got a lot of things in there about about aspects of government um, and aspects of You know, essentially aspects of government goes in there. But over the years, there's probably been more on ANZAC and more on war things than anything else. But that's because partly because I think other people have avoided it. They've sort of taken that as being acceptable and part of being Australian, and you don't question it. Whereas we've tried to question it and say, well, you know, if you look at the wars that we've fought... Probably the only one that's made any sense was, um, against the Japanese after Pearl Harbor. There wasn't much point in going to World War I. There wasn't much point in going to Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, and some of the peacekeeping operations you can justify, but we go overseas for, and this is the point that Sue Wareham makes. We have some, we have a, a long, long history of unjustifiable wars, unjustifiable, unjustifiable involvement in wars and we seem to be doing it all over again I mean the pictures that we've seen recently of um, the British Prime Minister the Australian Prime Minister the American President you could have had the same sorts of pictures in 1941 or 1942 it hasn't we haven't moved on much so it's in a way history is a very very good lens to look at what's happening now and you think well what's changed in 80 years?
1: Have you managed to get your work down as a reference for history teachers?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. We did a thing, we did two editions of it, I think, of, I think 2016 and 2018, I think. We called it the alternative, an alternative guide to the Australian War Memorial. And we basically, Peter Stanley and I basically went through the place and said, well, you know, here's some stuff about the bombing of Darwin, 250 people killed there's a bit of stuff there about the bombing of Hiroshima there's not much about the bombing of Dresden or the bombing of Berlin or the bombing of Tokyo before the atomic bomb was dropped we tried to get people to say there is more to war than what can be shown to affect Australians and more to what can be shown to affect Australians than Australian blacks going overseas to fight people so a lot of that stuff, that alternative guide, was I think downloaded about three thousand times altogether, mainly by we think teachers using it with their students. The honest history book's been used by um, history classes. Uh, we had quite good connections for for a while with history teachers associations. I did a couple of gigs with history teachers associations in different places and wrote articles, but. Um, A lot of that stuff has wound down a bit, partly because I'm getting older, but also because the focus, their focus has kind of spread a bit away from the the things that were highlighted during the ANZAC centenary. The other thing we did, we've we've always focused on the the curriculum, the issues about the curriculum. And, And when Alan Tudge got excited about the fact that ANZAC wasn't being taught enough, we We made sure that was publicised and said, you know, what is this guy on about? Is this the touching of Australian history that he thinks we've got to boost the ANZAC angle? So we've we've tried to kind of keep that curriculum stuff as it bobs up now and then on a bit of a profile. But I think, you know, we've got a lot of history teachers who've followed us on Twitter and and, um, communicated with us over the years. But it's still I went and spoke a couple of years ago to some students from Western Australia who were visiting the memorial and gave them this feel about look more broadly than what you're being what you're being shown and ask questions and I could see they were kind of interested but but as they went off they were basically they were starting to focus on the guns and the tanks and the particularly the boys the guns and the tanks and the the shoot 'em up stuff which the memorial does so well so it's it's, it's a hard it's a hard um, row to hoe, I think, to kind of divert children. And I think a lot of teachers will say we don't always use the stuff the DVA gives us. DVA is very good at handing out, you know, freebies and posters and different things. But a lot of younger teachers do tend to fall back on that stuff. And we try to encourage them. We have tried to encourage them to look more broadly at other ways of looking at Australian history.
1: Well, you wrote just on the 10th of April this year, some signs of progress on frontier wars at the memorial, but questions remain. Yeah. What are your questions? Yeah.
3: Well, the questions, we've done a couple of things since then. Essentially, Tim Beasley has been in the job for, uh, as chair of the council for four or five months now. He said, he's made a number of statements which essentially focus on three or four things. He said, we need to have substanti- a substantial presentation of the War Memorial, at the War Memorial of the frontier wars, which is good, but what does substantial mean? How substantial is substantial? He also says, we've focused too much on massacres. We need to give the, he calls it, the dignity of resistance. As we present um, the frontier wars, in the memorial and elsewhere. We need to recognise that they did resist, that people like Hawaii and Yagan and different people did resist the settlers and the, the native police and so on. So that's good. We agree with that. And he also says we must not focus on this just as a thing for the war memorial. We need to look at things being done in the, the National Museum and the, the, the local memorials to, to war, um, they need to have some recognition of, of the frontier wars and the impact of the frontier wars, and we say, yeah, of course that's that's right. Because, but the trouble is, if people say, oh, we shouldn't do it in the shouldn't do the frontier wars in the memorial. We should do it in the national museum, as if it's an either or. But if you look at the way that uniformed service is treated. If you want to know about records of soldiers, you don't go to the nas- go to the memorial. You go to the national archives. The national museum has things on. On uniformed soldiers. There's no reason why frontier wars can't be commemorated in the war, but also shown in the National Museum or in the new Nagura complex, which is the one that's going to be built on the other side of the lake, which is going to um, um, essentially be a a thing about Indigenous history, an institution about Indigenous history generally. There's no reason why it can't be in both places. The problem with all those good things that Kim Beasley has done is that when he said particularly when he says substantial, it doesn't match what is happening at the War memorial uh, with the management people, the management people and the the conservative group on the memorial council, which is led by a fellow called Major General Greg melick who's also the national head of the RSL, and they are basically saying, oh, we don't need to do much, we don't need to do much, and if you actually look, and this is made clear in um, some of our recent stuff. Kim Beasley says substantial, but the director of the War Memorial, uh, Matt Anderson, in November said, well, we've got 408 square metres, and we're going to do in that the frontier wars, the contingent that went to the Maori War, the New Zealand Wars in 1860, the contingent that went to the Sudan Wars in 1880, the contingent that went to the Boxer Rebellion in 1899, and the contingent that went to the Boer War they're all going to be put in there in one pre-1914 gallery because they all happened at much the same time. So frontier wars, which killed possibly up to 100,000 people, are being lumped together with these little expeditions where these good old boys went off to fight for Queen Victoria, which, you know, every death in war is a tragedy, but they netted a total of about 600 dead. So all of that's been chucked in, in current plans, substantial, Huh? in current plans is all going to be dealt with in 408 square metres and that 408 square metres we've checked with them is only 23 square metres more than they had before so you know, what do they mean by substantial if all they can manage is 23 square metres more of space than they had before and they've still got it all in with these other little tin pot expeditions that's it's just it's demeaning and it's ludicrous and Beasley I don't think has grasped He's not a, Kim's not a detailed man, uh, unfortunately. He hasn't quite grasped the difference between what he's been saying and what the bureaucrats in the, who run the memorial and the other people in the council have been saying. We've been in touch with him. He's politely responded to us. We think, for example, the most recent thing over Easter, where he started to try and define in an article in the Canberra Times he was interviewed, the Canberra Times, he started to get to trying to define a bit more what he meant by substantial, and the Canberra Times picked it up and said, well, what does he really mean? We think that, although no one's saying so, we think that they are reading what we're saying and trying to respond to it, but how far he's able to respond to it really depends on actions in the council, which has got, apart from Greg Mellick, the RSL guy, it's got Tony Abbott. It's got the three heads of the, um, the Army, Navy and Air Force and a couple of other uh, fairly conservative people. So <laughs> we're just not sure that Kim that, that, that Beasley has got the capacity or the energy to deliver on substantial representation of the frontier wars. So that's why we're trying to encourage people just to write to the minister, Matt Keogh, to write to Beasley and say, look, this is important. There was a poll in the Canberra Times the other day, 600 people, it's their standard panel where they ask people questions, um, and it was 68% believed that the war memorial should present the frontier wars. But that doesn't really help much because that 68% would all have different views about you know, how much and where and whatever. Henry Reynolds, the historian who's done a lot of work on this, said, we'll really know that there's been change if we ever get to the stage where right next to the tomb of the unknown Australian soldier, there's a the tomb of the unknown Indigenous warrior in the Hall of Memory. I don't think that's ever going to happen, but it you was know, worth considering. If these wars are, as Henry Reynolds said, our most important war, foundational, killed possibly 100,000 people, which is about the same number of uniformed people that were killed in the wars where we sent them overseas, you know, why shouldn't they be commemorated? in the same way at the memorial as we commemorate the soldiers that were died that we sent overseas. I mean, it's a hard question to answer. And I think the only way you can answer is just say, oh, well, you know, it's a different thing. And um, it's, you know, we're talking about a different sort of service. And there are a few more points. The, the other point, the point which tries to sort of pull it all together. I mean, I mentioned this in a couple of recent articles. Is the concept of defending country, if you look at what An and Noga and Raju and different people did when they were fighting against settlers and fighting against police and, and military detachments, they were defending country, they were defending their country, and you could argue that that 's essentially what people were doing who thought they were doing that were sent overseas to fight in World War one, World War II Vietnam etc there 's a common thread about uh, on defending country which we should be able with a bit of imagination to apply both to the people defending their country on their country the indigenous warriors and their their families defending their country on their country and the people that we sent overseas supposedly to defend our values or to defend australia's or just, you know to fight you know, fascism whatever overseas i mean it shouldn't be too hard to make that leap and one of the things we're trying to do is to say let's look at the common threads between those expeditionary forces we sent overseas to Gallipoli and wherever and World War II and, and Vietnam the common threads between that and what people were doing fighting, what indigenous people were doing fighting in the 19th century in Queensland and New South Wales and so on in conflict, which at the time, and Henry Reynolds makes this clear, people in newspapers in Queensland were saying, this is a war, we must treat it as a war, as if it was a war against Kaiser Bill or someone. This is a war and we need to treat it as such. They knew it was a war, we've kind of glossed it over since and said, oh, there were just a few skirmishes and people, you know, we it wasn't really all that big a deal, but one of the points we make is that no one knows actually how many were killed in the frontier wars. The war memorial itself admits to 20,000. They've got that on their website. A fella called Robert, I think it is, Elliston Jensen and Raymond Evans, the worker they go in Queensland says, they reckon 65,000 or more indigenous people were killed in Queensland alone. So in the frontier wars. And you, you go beyond that and you say, well, maybe 100,000. The fact that we don't know how many is indicative of how importantly or how unimportantly we've treated it over the decades, that we know, right down to the last man almost, and last woman, how many people were killed in the wars, in our, our official wars overseas. But we don't really know, and we've never tried to find out properly, how many died in the frontier wars. So that's sort of significant that, that one figure is, is pinned down to the last the last... Uh, dead Anzac, but the frontier wars, it's kind of, well, we think it's about somewhere between this number and that number, and we don't really know. That, to me, is appalling that we haven't got that grasp on our own history. But I think, to me, the, the point now is the current stuff we're doing, the history of IS history is kind of interesting, but the current stuff is to do with trying to get that frontier wars thing properly embedded in the war memorial, and that's going to be a real fight Journal know, from the Fin Review told me the other day. He said, "This will be a real fight if this ever gets underway, because they will fight like cats and dogs to try and prevent any change. The people like Millic and like Tony Abbott and others who are on the Memorial Council. Anyway, thanks for that.
1: And thank you. And David Stevens is editor of Honest History webpage, honesthistory.net.au. Music. Climate.
3: And what we can do about it all.
4: The Europe Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Thursday, April 27 to Friday, May 12, Yuruk is holding public hearings to question Victorian Government Ministers, senior bureaucrats and Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police about injustice against First Peoples in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at yurukjusticecommission.org.au. A 3CR supporter.
1: Reading from one commentator, the Australian Government has released the declassified version of the highly anticipated 2023 Defence Strategic Review and the war propagandists are delighted. Not so, Dr Sue Wareham, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Sue would like to turn it on its head and call it not a defense strategy view but an offensive strategy review and rather than australian it's an american they're very good questions and that
4: was certainly one of my impressions. i haven't read every word of the review but i've had a, a pretty good look through it and yes the emphasis is certainly on not defending australia from invasion but the emphasis is very much on projecting military power over a long range, which other nations would obviously see as threatening to themselves and probably uh, offensive. The Australian government uh, says in the review that, well, even though there's only a remote possibility of another country actually invading us militarily, and, and we've heard that over quite a long period, there's only a remote possibility of another country invading us, but they say, nevertheless, that our threats are of a, a different nature, threats to our trade, our sea lanes, communications, cyber threats, all that sort of thing. Um, nevertheless, the focus is is very much on a heavily militarised approach to our security and certainly not looking at uh, security in the broadest and, and proper sense of the term, which would, in, which would include a whole lot of Concepts particularly around climate and environmental concerns and other things which are of huge concern to other nations in our region, yes, it's a heavily militarized approach. Um, I think it could easily be seen as offensive as to who, whose interest does it actually serve. Uh, well, yes, a lot of commentators uh, would say that um, this is not serving australia's interests we are Getting ourselves even more deeply and deeply embedded with the u s military in a in a whole range of ways which this review contributes to greatly we would say it's more in u s interests than australia and australia's interests and I would qualify that by saying it's not in the interests of the american people it's in the interests of the those who profit from u s wars and those whose whose goal is uh, really u s uh, continued US domination. So uh, yes, it's not in the interests of the Australian people, and it's not in the interests of ordinary people uh, anywhere. Really, this is leading us closer and closer uh, towards, putting it bluntly, war with China, which could be a nuclear war, and that's uh, absolutely not in anyone's interests.
1: And I suppose when you're reading through that report review, that it's not surprising when you learn that the senior adviser and principal author is Peter Dean. He's a Professor and Director of Foreign, foreign Policy and Defence at the US Studies Centre at Sydney University and that study centre is funded by the United States. Yes, that's a, a very
4: fair, fair point and it's uh, deeply alarming that Professor Dean uh, was involved in this way as one of the key people in putting the Defence Strategic Review together. So yes, and the US State Department, uh, sorry, yes, the US State Department does provide funding for some of the US Studies Centres, Centre at Sydney Uni. The US State Department does provide some funding for their, uh, for that Centre. And in fact, one of the most recent things that the US State Department is keen to promote in Australia is more stronger greater support for the American Alliance, for the Australian-American Alliance um, in Australia because they recognise that a growing number of Australians are actually getting quite concerned about the all-consuming nature of the alliance in our military strategy. So the US government wants to try to rectify that, so they're putting in place various programs, um, including at the U.S. Studies Centre. So, yes, that, that's of, of very deep concern when we're meant to believe that this review is an independent review. Well, it's not independent when it's getting influences from uh, from other other governments. Um, and I should say also that in keeping with so much that government does these days, um, especially in the, quote, security and end of, quote, um, there's a lot of secrecy around it and none of the submissions were made public so we don't really know In fact, we don't know at all um, who submitted who said what the review did state I think it was towards the end that they had met with some industry groups so clearly as one would unfortunately expect them to do because the security industries are gaining so much influence these days so clearly there were there was consultation with those industries that some of which at least profit from wars and armed conflict the report said that there was consultation with the Australian embassies in Washington uh, in DC and in London they didn't as far as I could see Talk about any direct consultation with con- actually countries in our region, so while there is a lot of talk about increasing cooperation with our region, it seems to be in fact it it does um, it does appear to be very heavily uh, have a military focus, whereas countries in our region would regard number one climate um, as the threat to their security. Um, and perhaps climate on a par with nuclear weapons; those two overwhelming security threats. So we didn't get a sense that there was actually listening to other countries in our region about what they saw their threats as, and the best ways to address them.
1: How many pages are directed to climate change? I haven't read every word in those in those pages.
4: Climate had extremely little attention. I wouldn't wouldn't say zero was mentioned. On the matter of how the extent to which militaries around the world, including in Australia, actually contribute to climate change, in other words, the greenhouse gas emissions from military establishments and operations, that's quite a big problem around the world and probably contributes, estimates are that it contributes about 5% to global greenhouse gas emissions, which is which is a pretty huge percentage, actually, from military activity around the world. So there's a, gr- a growing movement to get more focus onto that and to have militaries reduce their emissions, and that would most easily be done by reducing operations, of course. Defence Strategic Review gave, I think it was about two sentences on in those 100-plus pages, about, and 100-plus public pages, I should say. There's a lot more that's not disclosed but about two sentences to defence undergoing a clean energy transition. And we're told that um, there will be a plan presented for that transition by 2025. So the focus is not on clean energy. You know, if there's a real interest in climate change as an overwhelming security threat, then you don't just give it a token mention in a um, very, very long defence report quite heavy emphasis on the nuclear submarines. On the submarines, um, there was hardly any discussion about the need for them, virtually none, because that decision has already been made. Mind you, as to whether the submarines got ahead or not um, is an entirely different question, but the government decision has been made. So the review didn't talk about whether we should have nuclear-powered submarines. Um, But there was quite a bit of focus on preparing for them and upgrading our port facilities, especially in WA around Stirling and uh, Henderson base over there, other matters associated with preparing for the nuclear submarines. Nuclear weapons, unless I missed it, hardly any attention to that. And as mentioned, nuclear weapons and climate change are our two overwhelming global security threats that are affecting, will affect all of us.
1: Was there much talk about how much all this is going to cost and how they're going to do it? Attention to the cost—that that
4: was certainly included. It was not my primary concern in in looking at this. We've know, know from a huge, uh, well, from from a number of sources um, over recent weeks, especially since the submarine announcement, um, we know that it's a vast amount of national treasure which has been poured into our military. Not just on the submarines, although that's a that's a pretty big chunk of it, three hundred and sixty eight billion dollars. It's a figure that's it's almost hard to get around get your head around what that could do if it were spent uh, elsewhere, even if it were spent on different types of submarines which would come at a, a fraction of that cost cost to the nation and the opportunity cost of what we're missing out on in improving our health education, our housing, environmental care, a whole, whole range of things, other social issues that should weigh very, very heavily on any government decisions. But what we see time and time again is that Defence Department uh, decide that they need a particular weapon system, there'll be some sort of assessment process. But if, if the government can put the label security on it, then it just seems to breeze through. Um, and as we know, costs blow out, timelines blow out and, and all the rest of it. But other sectors in society have to struggle and plead and beg and get by on inadequate resources. Uh, I mean look at teachers. Struggling under, under huge pressure, some of them leaving. Same in the healthcare sector. Huge gaps in our healthcare sector, and workers working under enormous pressure. Climate action. Huge number of areas of environmental remediation that absolutely desperately need, need funding. Uh, the people crying out for that are just having a real real struggle on their hands. So it's a really warped approach to security. All of the things that I I mentioned, good health care, good education system, um, an environment that's actually sustainable into the future, these are our security. These are the things that are are going to ensure a sustainable and good sense of well-being for all of us, and not only in Australia but around the world.
1: Well, finally, Sue, when you look at this Defence Review and you think about the Australian... Labor Party or what used to be a Labor Party and these are the workers in Australia who are suffering so that we can pursue what many people believe is a war with America on China Yes indeed Um, Australians are suffering uh,
4: as a result of funding priorities because governments are meant to govern us in our best interests and when we see huge amounts of our funding, our taxes, going towards preparing for a war, which is a a major war between the US and China, to which Australia will tag along, as we always do, unless we change course. Uh, When we see huge amounts of national treasure going towards that goal, then it's just not right we should be having funding directed towards the well-being of the Australian people. And certainly an element of that is preparing against the possibility of outside aggression. Not many people are arguing to abandon uh, defence forces and defence capability. But when they become, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, much more in the realm of offence, then that's deeply problematic. We really need to change course um, because we're heading for a catastrophic war which could be on a scale that the world has never seen.
1: But how are we going to achieve that turnaround?
4: We need people to be active. We need people in whatever sector, whatever area of society is of concern to them to speak loudly, and I know a lot of them are doing that, and to demand that our resources are going towards making better lives for the Australian people and making us and our region all more secure. And we don't want our national treasure being poured into preparing for a war between two superpowers, both of whom are nuclear armed. We're not arguing against good, friendly relationships and we're even not arguing against a military alliance with the United States, although there are some issues around that certainly in the way it's conducted at the moment. But if we are to have an alliance with the United States, then it it needs to be on equal terms, equal roles in the partnership, not having Australia as the usual term lapdog, which unfortunately is the role that we continue to play. It's heading us in a very bad direction and it's not serving our interests or our needs or many
1: other people's. Thank you so much, Sue. Thanks very much, Jen. And that was Dr. Sue And If you'd like to learn more about the work of MAPW, do go to their webpage. Hi, I'm Monera from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Join the National Day of Action on May 13th to mark 75 years since the Nakba,
5: also known as the Catastrophe, when 80% of the Palestinian people were ethnically cleansed from their homeland and over 530 Palestinian villages destroyed to create the State of Israel. Today, Palestinians on a daily basis are still resisting the loss of their homeland and human rights, insisting on their right of return and sharing their truth. Join them in their fight for justice and a free Palestine at 1pm, Saturday May 13th at the State Library. That's 1pm, Saturday 13th of May. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
1: Featuring today a paper by Marxist historian and author Humphrey McQueen, titled A Socialist Republic. When I spoke with Humphrey at the weekend, I began with, The Queen is dead, long live the King. Not his vision for Australia's future, instead, a republic, but not just any republic, but a socialist republic, and asked him to explain what he meant.
5: A class question, the matter of class. You can have all kinds of republics, I and mean, in the United States, for example, well, You could say as a republic, it's more likely truly to be a plutocracy, a society where you have the rule of the rich. But you have that fundamentally what you have in every class society. The point about, in one sense, of having any kind of semi-democratic kind of republic is that you've almost removed the hereditary principle. So that you, right from the start, you've got rid of your hope, the notion that some people are better than others, and therefore they are allowed to rule over, over the rest of us. And that, in a sense, fits in with the socialist notion of social equality. And what I want to do, in what I'm arguing about a socialist republic, is that it fulfills the notion of social equality. Uh, whereas what we're getting at the moment is always, well, not always, well, at the beginning, in 75, things, things were quite different. But what's happened with Turnbull and people since with the, with the Republican movement, it's just become quite, well, their slogan, as you know, is, we'll have a residential president. Well, who? Morrison? Howard? Kerr? These people were all resident in Australia. What do you want them for? Well, in Howard's case, you want him for a series of war crimes that he committed. But you certainly don't want people just because they're here. And nor do you want them necessarily just because they were born here. The old Duke of Wellington, who was born in Ireland, had a wonderful argument when people would say to him, you're Irish. He'd say, the fact you're born in the stable doesn't make you a horse. doesn't make you Jesus Christ, either. But we won't go into that for the moment. So it's the basic principle of social equity, that it's the attack on, on the class notion of these things. And there are plenty of other examples of this around the world that we could go into. Because of the two years i spent in Japan, I was, I was very aware of that aspect of the Japanese emperor system, for example. One of these things about post-war Japan is you had, as somebody said, you had the ex-god Hirohito, as the Emperor, and they were calling him by then and the successor. they were referred to as a kind of salary man, which is their you know term for an office worker. He wasn't God anymore; he was just another salary man employed by the government to do certain things. So, I mean one of the things that surprised me when I got there was the number of Japanese I spoke to i mean at the university or things, you had to be reminded they still had an emperor or that it was there, oh, yes, they said, yes. So what I discovered from my contact with a group of members of the Japan Communist Party was that their objection to the emperor was not to the person. Their objection was to what they called the emperor system. And there are two elements to that. One of them is specific to Japanese society. In Japan, there are something like two to three million people, the Burakuen, who are the untouchables. They're the, the people in the past whose families who were grave diggers and butchers and did all those sort of stuff. They are marked down and, you know, the big corporations kept lists of who these people were and their family names and connections. If you applied for a job and you came out of that, there was no chance of you actually Finding employment. What the Japan Communist Party was saying, this links into the whole basis of the emperor system in terms of the Shinto belief in absolute absolute purity. It's not the only religion Hindu, Muslim, and there's a bit of it in Christianity, not so much, but this notion that religion is about purifying the body purifying everything about you. And that clearly the Barakowin, because of the work they had done, they were not pure, quite the opposite. Whereas the emperor is the quintessence of purity. And what the communists argued and others argued was, you cannot liberate the Barakowin unless you get rid of this whole system, this whole mentality, that some people are clean, purely clean, and other people are just filthy. So that in order to get social equity into Japan, you had to get rid of the emperor, the whole of the emperor system and the religious Shinto belief in how that operated. Now, the other side of the emperor system, though, this applies in communist countries as well. Quite how you described describe the government in North Korea, but it is a kind of monarchy with three generations now passed on from one to the other. It's not hereditary in the Constitution, but it it might as well be, because it looks as if they are going to pass it on again. But leaving that aside, what the Japanese communists explained to me was that what the emperor system involves is that you have somebody at the top of the government or an
2: organization
5: of any kind. Anything that goes wrong is somebody else's fault. The person at the top can't make any mistakes. One might look at what I refer to as... um, Capitalism with Confucian characteristics in mainland China. You've got, you can certainly point to that sort of attitude there over a long period of time. And and elsewhere, but it doesn't have to be in that kind of society. I mean, you can point to it in all sorts of organisations. And in fact, one could point to it a certain number of organisations in Australia where this notion, whoever is on top, is kind of perfect and can't be criticised. They get everything right. And this is the emperor system, as the Japanese described it. And you can see this, again, as a principle of, well, against social equity, against social equality. Um, And if we go on from there to the way in which the official Republican movement has wanted whoever going to be the, the president of the republic is going to be chosen. It's not going to be chosen by everybody. There's not going to be a popular vote because they're frightened of the people. That's the fundamental thing. Old Bob Carr said, well, if there's a popular election for the president, I'm going to oppose the republic. And what he was speaking of is the contempt that all those political leaders have for everybody else. They cannot believe that, that the popular will in a debate, in an argument, could actually come up with the right answer. Whereas we this tiny elite of people, these kind of gangsters who've gone off to this Albanese and, and Mins in New South Wales. They've gone off to this Rub shoulders with these gangsters. You know, we're supposed to believe that they're in some way in a better position to choose how the country should be run. Whereas any kind of republic that I want anything to do with, it's got to be something, first of all, as I say, that is it's based on social equity and then based in the popular will. Now, of course, in that there will be a big contest, but we have to believe that we can put up a good case and our side is able to win. As an old unionist said to me, you know, many people say this, of course, if there's a dispute in a workplace, there are two ways of going about it. The executive can decide, or you can put it to the rank and file. If you put it to the rank and file and you win, well, that's great. If you put it to the rank and file and you don't win, that's not bad either because two things have happened. You've engaged in an education campaign. You didn't convince everybody, but you got the ideas across. And secondly, you've got a chance to learn from your own mistakes, which you don't always do if things always turn out your own way. So even if, God forbid, there were an election for the the presidency of Australia and you know Scott Morrison managed to get elected, we'd have to say to ourselves, what have we done wrong? We don't say, in that wonderful line, lines out of, of the Bertolt Brecht poem, after the rebellion in East Germany in 1953, the only solution is, as he says, dissolve the people and elect another. Well, no, that's not how a socialist should indeed see the world.
1: All right, I want to come back to that in a couple of minutes. Can I ask you for your analysis of the French Republic?
5: Well, there have been five of them from 1791 onwards. Um, they've had four more since then. The first thing to say about it is, you know, in France or any other country, to understand how any system functions today, you've got to see what has come out of like over the last couple of hundred years. Just as looking at the moment, at the great upsurge across French society, in a way, that is a continuation of a revolutionary tradition that rose up and then went down again, rose, you know, 1790s, 1830, 1848, 1870, and onwards. So some of those things are carried forward there. But of course on the other side of the ledger, the ruling class, the property class, they carry their views forward too. They think, well, it didn't turn out too well for us last time, so how do we control it and run it in a different kind of way? Now, that's a long way around the background to your question, which is about what is happening with the French politics today. I mean, as you know, the three leading candidates in the last presidential election all pretty much you know, came in at about the same percentage of vote, 20 21 22%. Oh, Macron was in front by a fraction, so that into the system, where you have a second round of voting, he was up against the second candidate, and most people thought she was, you know, too far to the right entirely, and a lot of people who didn't want to vote for Macron thought, well, we're not going to have, you know, not going to have her, and the sort of, ultra-right-wing views that she holds, so we'll have to vote for him. What they've landed with, of course, is what they've now got. But we're also, of course, there's this massive objection to it as well. But in the French constitutional system, what you have, which is peculiar pretty much to France, first of all, it's a totally centralised system. All power is concentrated at the political centre. We've got a federation here, so we've got, various states, the US, Canada with provinces, France, everything is in Paris, Everything's pretty much decided there, and everything is decided between, there are two houses, there's a constituent assembly, and there, there is also the French Senate, and there's a constitutional court, which is much more active immediately in political matters, as we've seen in the last you know, few weeks, um, than, the, than the high court will be here. Would take ages for the High Court here to act in the same way that, that they're able to do. And what happened was that after the kind of chaos of the Third Republic and the Fourth Republic and things, what, what General de Gaulle managed to get through and the, the Republic that they have today is a system in which the President has enormous powers. Nobody here is suggesting. We're going to elect any kind of president who is therefore running the country. We're still going to keep the kind of parliamentary system we've got. The French don't have that, so that the reason you've got the kind of power that is concentrated around Macron, who is, after all, carrying out the demands of the the vile lot who run the European Union out of Brussels and the big corporations and want to attack the working class and ordinary people. That's really where the French system is completely different to anything we're ever likely to get here. Now, what's going to happen out of these years and months that this struggle has been going on, whether the French will then try and think, well, it's time we reorganize the system in a different way as well. I don't think that's likely to happen immediately. I don't think the crisis is at that point yet, but it's been building up for quite a few years. So big changes may indeed happen, but the French model is certainly, I mean, I think in many ways, anti-democratic and was designed to be so, was to keep centralised power. When we were in Paris in 83, two years after Francois Mitterrand had been elected president, the first, you know, socialist president ever, really broke the power that the old ruling class had over the whole of the administrative system. After a couple of years, things going bad for the economy and there was a lot of opposition to him and things. And I said to, you know, someone there, is he going to be able to get himself re-elected? I think it was a seven-year term in those days. So he had five more years to run. And what he said to me was, he said, Humphrey, what you've got to remember is in the case of Francois Mitterrand, you have somebody with the powers of the president of France, these enormous powers that he has, plus somebody who came up through the Third Republic and the Fourth Republic. The kind of shithouse coming of somebody who manipulated his way through those. He said, look, if he doesn't win, it won't be because he doesn't have the power and the skills to stay there. Now, so happened that when I was in France, in 88, I just got there. And the elections were coming up again. And all the professors in the department would say, oh, you know, Mr. Arndt's going to lose. And I thought, oh, well, i just tell them what I've just told you. So when he won, I have to say, my street cred in the department went up enormously because I was the only person who was even halfway suggesting. But it had nothing to do with me. It was to do with what I'd been told and that had to do with the history of France and the combination of that old bargain-dealing, double-dealing activity that had gone on in the Third Republic, which he had learned his way through, and then these enormous powers that, that de Gaulle and others had put into it to make sure that they didn't have the situation that the Italian Republic had where you have a change of government every nine months designed to prevent that kind of thing happening.
1: Well let's go back to your choice of a republic a socialist republic how would that fit in with federation and how would it fit in with the power of the multinationals now particularly the war machine multinationals? Well
5: they're the two important questions let's go back to federation unfortunately there's still people who should know better who associate federation with some degree of Australian independence. Federation was designed to strengthen the power of the British Empire in Australia and around the world. Let me just give you an important example of this. The Australian males, except in South Australia where women had the vote as well, voted more or less for a version of the Constitution. Now in 97, 1897, at the adelaide convention where they were working out what the words would be the colonial office got in touch with the premier of new south wales george reid and said to him look we're not going to approve this unless there's an appeal to the privy council written into your constitution because all the people in britain who've lent money to australia are worried that they won't get it back the british bondholders are worried so george reid not telling anybody where he got his instructions from, got them to agree to be able to do that. Fortunately for Reed, he wasn't able to get all his own way. And that, quite a number of the quite conservative judges here, legal people, thought, we can decide what the law is, we don't need these people over there telling us. So when the Constitutional Committee, Alfred Deacon and people, three of them, got to England in 1900, With the draft bill to become the constitution of Australia, the colonial office said to them again, this will never get through the British Parliament because, again, there's no protection for the British bondholder. Two things are necessary to understand here. First of all, about federation. The Australian constitution was an act of the British Parliament. And until it was repatriated as they used the term, under the Australia Act in 1987, the British Parliament technically could have rewritten the Australian Constitution without asking us. Now, they wouldn't do it. It was far too dangerous politically for them to do that directly. But they'd done a lot of what they wanted to do, which is get in the appeals to the Privy Council to protect the British bondholder. Now, Alfred Deacon, who refused to accept he never became Sir Alfred. He wouldn't have one. He wanted to spit the dummy and come home. Say, well, if you don't give us what we want, we're not going to do anything. And we're just going to see how you like that. But the other two said, no, 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 we could have compromise. So they came up with another compromise. So appeals to the Privy Council lasted on certain matters, mainly connected with big constitutional questions or protecting British investors in Australia. Now, that is one element of how Federation was designed to strengthen the British Empire not to weaken to weaken Australia. Later on, of course, they had other methods of doing this, like when it looked as if Jack Lang in New South Wales was going to not pay the full interest on the money to the British bondholders, Governor Game sacked him. So they had other ways of doing this. They also, through the British stock exchange and the bond market, there was a man called Lord Glendine. And Lord Glendine's job was to advise all the other British banks on whether they should lend money to Australia or not. And he misbehaved, like the South Australian government did. They were spending too much money on the wrong things in 1908. Lord Glendine said to them, I'm sorry, but you don't have any more money until you behave yourself again. Ted Theodore, the Premier of Queensland, they wanted to impose a slightly higher rate of tax on the big pastoral properties in Queensland. Many of them, of course, were owned by British investors. And again, the British bond market said, OK, if you do that, we don't lend you any money. And they didn't. So Ted went off to New York and borrowed money. The problem was, to do it, he had to pay a higher rate of interest. So within a year, he came back to Britain, to London and said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to introduce the tax, we'll do whatever you want. That's how that side of it has, has functioned. Now, across to the US corporate warfare state, we can see them everywhere, but what was happening in 75? The CIA were panic-struck at what Whitlam was saying about their operations at Pine Gap, because as you know, Pine Gap was then and still is one of the two most important communications bases that the American, that the U.S. corporate warfare state has anywhere in the world. He was saying things. I they were sending cables out here saying, "What the hell is going on? Is this just parliamentary politics? Is he just scoring points, or is he serious about this?" Because of <laughs> amazingly, it so happened that previously the two heads of, of ASIO and of ACES had both had their heads chopped off. That These spy organizations didn't have anybody in charge. So the messages weren't getting through and the CIA aren't getting any answers. And they interpret this as being we're going to go ahead without you. That so we are serious about this. And at this point, of course, their long-term agent, John Kerr, who'd been involved with the American intelligence organizations since the 1940s, he'd spent the 50s and 60s as an agent in all kinds of things, you know, throughout Asia, sponsoring legal, um, fronts for, you know, the CIA fronts in all these other countries. He'd been a real leg man for them. Now he was in the position to do them a really good turn. This is how we get to November, November the eleventh, seventy-five. Today, of course, and it's worth reminding people now that in eighty-six, Keating government and the Hawke and Keating also wanted to introduce some control over US investors in Australia. On the Sunday after this was announced, their main banker in New York rang them up and said, "Look, we're terribly sorry, but..." We're getting all these messages from our customers here, and they don't want to lend you any more money because of this bill you're going to introduce. But by Tuesday, Hawk Keating had dropped the bill. So they don't actually have to cut your money off. They just have to threaten to cut your money off when you come to heel. As you say, the great danger today is from the US corporate welfare state. And how would a republic, in any sense, all to that. Well, as I say, if John Kerr were the President of the Republic rather than Governor-General, it would probably make it easier for him except, of course, that being Governor-General allowed some people to be confused about why he was doing it, and they think he was doing it you know, to protect the Queen's investments or something, rather than to protect the US corporate welfare state. But what is true about all of this, and why I think it's important to have Somebody here, in all of these positions, is that... I mean, I'm old enough to remember the days in which, were, in those days, there were only eight songs on the hit parade. All of them came from the United States. I mean, you know, now, you know, we've got the Australian music industry, we've got all kinds of people out of the top 40 now. You wouldn't expect that. But there were no feature films being made in Australia. A friend of mine said... If there's no feature films, there are no daydreams for Australia. And what I think this all comes down to, or up to, is that if you live in a society, as Frantz Fanon said, where you have a colonized mentality, where you think everything good comes from somewhere else, whether it's the music or the films or the books or everything, what this does is to implant the notion and strengthen the notion that well, we can't look after ourselves, we need the great and powerful friend. So there's a cultural dimension to it as well that is a political dimension. It's not up front, it's not the immediate thing you think of, but in a world in which, uh, there's still a, you know, you know still, US cultural imperialism is still pretty strong around the place you know, in all kinds of odd ways, but that's why I think it's important to do it. It's not the most important thing, far, far from it. At the moment, clearly the front line is opposing these deals over the nuclear submarines and um, being dragged into this war with China and all the other things they're up to. And that's where we have to direct our fire. And I think in there as well, we've got to be careful about how we do it to appeal to people. Because already I think there's quite a widespread opposition within the Labour Party. I shouldn't say Labour Party because there hasn't been one. Within the ALP, you know, to, to all of this. Because there's a strong anti-nuclear tradition around the, the Labour movement in Australia. And a lot of people are really upset about this. But outside that, there's a general feeling that if we've got the hundreds of billions to spend, and we've got people sleeping in cars, you can't get an appointment with a doctor, there's no money for government schools, if you turn up an emergency department, I mean, you would wait for 12, 14 hours before you see anybody, if, if you want a, a non-urgent operation, well, 12 months, 24 months, 5 years, people are saying, if we've got all this money, and the subs aren't going to come until we're all dead anyway, why are we spending it on this? Rather than on making this a decent society. And that's what we've got to build on. I think we've got to work to people and bring both of those things in together, the notion of social equality. You use this money that would go on to, into you know, the US corporate welfare state, because that's really where it's going. As our friend Clinton Fernandez says, this is just a subsidy, to let them build their subs. That's what it's really about. As far as the Yanks are concerned, these whatever we get here in twenty forty or whatever it is, that's not what they're primarily concerned about at the moment for themselves. So that we can bring these things together that this that we oppose the US corporate warfare state over this huge expenditure by pressing for the money being spent. To advance social equality in Australia.
1: I can't let you go, Humphrey, without asking about your addendum from September last year. Down yeah. with all the parasites! And somebody
5: I th- said to me, today, well, a few days ago, they'd heard that some clairvoyant had decided that Charles would never manage to get on the throne. You know, that the coronation would never happen. And I said, I said to well, them, look. All that will mean is we'll have to endure another funeral and one of the other parasites will step up. If it goes through with a machine gun, there'd be no shortage of parasites to step up and take their place. I mean, you just look at anywhere in the world, where there are these corrupt monarchies, Spain or yeah. the prime example. So you just get rid of one and there's another one there. But in the case of what, you know, the addendum that I put up when the old queen died, What I pointed out was that there would not be the general rejoicing that there was when Margaret Thatcher died. But it's important to distinguish the roles between Thatcher and the Queen in serving the interests of British capital. Thatcher was a representative of British corporate wealth and power the British state. She didn't own much of it. Really, she didn't own any of it, you know, effectively. The Queen, however, is a combination of these two things. Well, she was one of the richest people of the world. People have been publicising what the sort of crown estate is. There's not too much of it. I think Charles probably got something under one billion pounds or something, poor thing. But the whole of the crown estates run to hundreds of billions of pounds everywhere. And so she actually is an embodiment of the UK class system as well as being a representative And where she's a representative, and this takes us right back to where we started, again, the principle of some people are born to rule over you. Her job, and all the ones around her, job has been to try and convince people that some of us are better than the rest of you. The way they used to do that, they'd all get done up in diamonds and flash clothes. Well, of course, that doesn't go down too well anymore. If you want to see an interesting change in the the image of the royal family, Look at a stamp collection of how the Queen appeared into the mid-late 50s, gripping with diamonds. Now she looks like a well-heeled grandma, expensively dressed, but one or two jewels somewhere. And I'll end you with a funny story to cheer us all up. Princess Anne was here a few, or 20 or more years ago now, and she was doing one of these people's walks The citizens of Canberra were lined up and she was going to walk down the middle. And as she's going past, a teenager calls out to her, excuse me, princess, she turns around and says, yes. Are those pearls real? And poor Princess Anne could only say, what an extraordinary question. As if I'd be wearing fake pearls.
1: And many thanks to Marxist historian and author Anthony McQueen. 3CR Community Radio,
0: 855 AM. Hey Anne, Mm? where else would you hear about Progressive Economics?
5: Well, you can definitely hear about it on 3CR Radio
1: MMT. MMT.
0: Between 5.30 and 6.30 PM.
1: The second and fourth Friday of each month.
0: Radio NMT Dino Surprise
5: Surprise.
0: Surprise Surprise It's a show about kid stuff What sort of kid stuff? All sorts of kid stuff I'm Carl Punezzo. And I'm Daniel Salvatore Christopher Larkins, <laughs> pernitzo and we are Playing the platters that matter Spinning the discs with a twist Talking the job that will keep you alive To, to make, make sure, sure you really, really exist <laughs> Every Thursday From 3.30 to 4 Right here on 3CR
1: 8.55 on your AM dial <coughs>
0: We have giveaways and question time
1: we will need you to SMS your favourite line
0: So tune in to find out what's going on in our world
1: I'm surprise surprise, surprise, surprise. Our Latin American country profile for May is Ecuador, which literally translates to the Republic of the Equator. And my guide is PhD candidate and journalist, Sasha gillies Lakakis. And Sasha, we always have a starting date
0: Today we're looking at Ecuador, which is one of the smallest countries in South America and, you know, it is one of the smallest in Latin America as well. It's quite well known because it's got some pretty stunning natural beauty. It's considered one of the most mega diverse countries on the planet. It's got, you know, a beautiful coastline. It's of course the Galapagos Islands where Charles Darwin made a lot of his discoveries about natural selection, looking at different species of finch, the tortoise, the marine iguana. Of course, Ecuador also has quite a vast Amazon territory as well, um, and highlands in the Andes Mountains. So it's quite well known for its natural beauty, but it's a country that has had a long struggle to cement itself and its identity. In Latin America, it's come under attack quite a lot in its history. Even the idea of Ecuador as, as a country has been disputed by other parts of Latin America, other governments in Latin America. And unfortunately, at the moment, it's in a period of quite intense crisis. But to begin with, to understand how it got to this point. I'm of course going to start with the indigenous peoples of Ecuador, the indigenous civilizations which are really quite diverse and there's a really large amount of indigenous civilizations inhabiting the different parts of Ecuador before the Spanish arrive. So some of the most well-known ones are the Cara and the Quito um, and these are full-blown civilizations so they have, just like the, the Aztecs and the Incas, they have their own temple cities. They have really complex and vibrant and diverse trade networks because, of course, the Cara and the Quito were situated along the Ecuadorian coastline as well as the mountains and the Amazon. So they actually served as this sort of maritime hub, the trade between neighboring indigenous civilizations. It was really quite a complex and diverse indigenous sort of landscape in Ecuador prior to the arrival of the Spanish. Now interestingly we also see here quite a clear example of inter-Indigenous conflict take place in Ecuador. And that's chiefly a little bit later in the 1400s when the Inca Empire begins expanding northward. So, of course, the Incas have their heartland in southern Peru. Their capital is Cusco, um, which is still a very popular tourist attraction today, close to where Machu Picchu is. The Inca Empire was an incredibly well-organized nation-state in Latin America. It was a very centralized power. They had an emperor, of course, that was believed to be um, related to or to be able to converse with a range of different gods, chiefly the sun god for the Inca. But they were quite a militaristic and a warlike culture as well. Um, They saw that it was their... A right but also a responsibility to extend their rule and offer the the benefits of Inca civilization to other parts of Latin America. So they spread south into even into Bolivia and a bit of Argentina and Chile and north up into Ecuador. But in Ecuador, they faced quite serious opposition from some of these major Ecuadorian indigenous civilizations. So the Cara and the Quito um, were also quite warlike. They had a very well-developed, well-defined military. And there was quite a difficult period of conflict of war between the Inca Empire and all of these Ecuadorian civilizations and tribes as well. And it actually took the Inca about ten years overall to fully subdue the Ecuadorian indigenous civilizations and then they completed their conquest of the majority of Ecuador, not all of it, but the, the parts that mattered. So they took over the Andean region, they took over the coastline and this became part of the new Inca Empire. Of course, there's another empire that's interested in Ecuador and in the rest of the continent, and that are, those are, of course, the Spanish, um, the conquistadors, who are coming and exploring this region for the first time. And in particular, the, the main villain in this case is Francisco Pizarro. Um, now, he's probably the, the second most well-known conquistador, aside from Hernán Cortés, and that's because Pizarro oversees the complete destruction of the Inca Empire. So he arrives in 1530 with a handful of men on on the coast of Ecuador, actually. That's where they land. They quickly learn that the Inca Empire is in a period of crisis. So it's just come out of this quite debilitating war against the Ecuadorian indigenous civilizations. Um, And on top of that, there's an internal dispute within the Inca royal family um, between Atahualpa, who is the new emperor, and a number of his cousins and relatives who don't believe that he's fit to rule the empire. So there's a bit of an internal power struggle within the Inca hierarchy. And the Spanish are able to take advantage of that really quite easily. Um, in fact, it's remarkable that literally with less than 100 men, Pizarro is able to pretty much destroy the heartland of the Inca empire. This is due to a number of reasons. Of course, they bring disease with them. These are well-armored men. These are veterans from previous conflicts in Central America um, and even in southern Mexico and the Caribbean. So these are well-trained Spanish mercenaries that are coming to fight the Inca. And then, of course, you also have these tribes and these civilizations that were subjugated by the Inca monarchy in Ecuador and in other parts of the Inca Empire that see the Spanish as a means of overthrowing Inca control. So it's a sort of a situation of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Cooperate briefly with the Spanish to break the Inca control over the, the sort of the extremities of the empire. So Ecuador, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina. And literally in, you know, three years later, so they started this conquest in 1530, just three years later in 1533, Pizarro has totally destroyed the Inca Empire. So the empire collapses. Pizarro claims Cusco as a Spanish city. He founds it as, as the new capital of what becomes the vice royalty of Peru. Uh, and of course, the Spanish, you know, being voracious imperialists, turn on all of these other civilizations and subjugated peoples that had supported them against the Inca, so he of course lays claim then to Ecuador and he crushes his former allies in the Ecuadorian civilizations. And the same goes for those other regions in the south. So you know, northern Chile, northern Bolivia, northern Argentina. The Spanish are just totally unscrupulous and violent in their subjugation of these groups. We we see an interesting sort of dynamic emerge where. There's an Inca resistance, and it's it's a very spirited resistance against the Spanish. Um, now, of course, one of the leaders of this resistance is Tupac Amaru. Um, he's a very famous Inca warrior. He was also related to the royal family, but he manages to rally a very large number of not only Inca, but other indigenous civilizations to his cause. Um, and he actually ends up making his last stand and sort of entrenching himself in a mountain stronghold in ecuador in what is today ecuador with the help of ecuadorian civilization so in the end i guess a sort of perverse sort of full circle situation the indigenous people are forced to come back together to fight the spanish so you know the inca and you know for example the cara and the quitu put their differences aside to try and stop the spanish conquest from you know fully destroying what's left of the Inca resistance but of course by that time it's too late and the Spanish do end up capturing Tupac Amaru and executing him publicly as a as an example to anyone who would try and resist European colonization in the future. We see Ecuador become part of this viceroyalty of of, um, of Peru on the viceroyalty of Lima as it's sometimes called. Within that territory it's considered the Audiencia de Quito, so the Quito audience or the Quito Council, um, which of course is based in the city of Quito, which is the capital of Ecuador today. And it had been where the Spanish decided to found the major settlement in Ecuador for their continued colonial expansion. Ecuador, during Spanish rule, is quite a poor region of the empire. So the the chief benefit that Ecuador gives the Spanish empire is its maritime connections. As I was um, saying, even during the indigenous era, the maritime connections Ecuador had were really critical in providing prosperity for indigenous civilizations. And the Spanish find, again, that there's, you know, quite a lot of parts of the coastline of Ecuador that are really conducive to building ports, that can stay open year-round, very easy for ships to moor. There's, you know, ideal conditions basically to create this sort of thriving maritime trade. What has made Ecuador wealthier in the modern day is oil that wasn't discovered yet, of course, in the Spanish colonial era. So we see traditional cash crops begin to emerge. Um, Bananas in quite a lot of Ecuador, cacao as well. Um, There's a little bit of mining in the Andes Andes Mountains, um, but not a lot by this stage. So really... It's providing wealth for the local elites, um, and they of course run Ecuador's land through the encomienda system. So essentially, you know, feudalism. They, the conquistadors, take a large plot of land, and any indigenous people previously living there basically have to work as slaves on that land. So, so that's sort of the situation that Ecuador finds itself in during Spanish colonial rule. And, of course, you have the entire Ecuadorian population virtually in a state of serfdom. And this is going to engender really fierce resistance on the part of the subjugated peoples. It's not just indigenous peoples, so that it become part of the Inca empire previously, but increasingly African slaves brought across from Guinea to West Africa, chiefly to man the ports along Ecuador's coast. And we have a really fascinating development take place, you know, culturally speaking. We have the emergence of a group of people known as the Zambo or the Zambos. And they are essentially African indigenous people. So people with either an African father or mother and an indigenous father or mother. And these, this sort of mingling does happen in other Latin American countries, but not to the same extent as in Ecuador. The Zambo people become quite a distinct group in what is now Ecuador, uh, in comparison to other parts of Latin America where that isn't necessarily the case. And the Zambos bring together two different cultures, two different peoples that have both suffered, you know, heinous abuse at the hands of the Spanish Empire, they begin a really spirited resistance against colonial rule. So for quite some time, you know, the really remote parts of the Amazon and the Andes Mountains become uncharted territory for the Spanish. They're actually unable to fully assert their authority in those areas because the Zambos are so well organized and so well coordinated. Now, unfortunately, these regions of Ecuador are you know, devoid of resources, devoid of any potential wealth. They're not connected to any of the sort of financial centers along the coast in Ecuador. So it's very difficult for the Zambos to do anything you know, that would threaten Spanish rule in Ecuador totally. But for a time, they are able to operate as sort of independent communities. Occasionally, they come under attack by Spanish expeditions, not only from Ecuador, but coming in from the Peruvian part of the Viceroyalty as well. You know, it's a very difficult existence that these people live, but they've managed to sort of find their own way of existing and resisting in spite of Spanish rule. The Zambos are particularly, of course, persecuted, but the entire the entire you know Ecuadorian populace is really suffering economically, and particularly this becomes apparent between 1700 and 1800 when there's a depression in Spain itself in mainland Europe. Spain is suffering an economic backslide, which is really quite severe, and this ripples out into the colonies. Now, Ecuador is particularly hard hit because, of course, with the reduction in Spanish trade, all of these maritime commercial links that Ecuadorian elites relied on, they sort of begin to dry up. Produce, currency, um, commodities sort of begin al- almost halting in terms of the, the trade that was coming from Europe and from other parts of the Spanish Empire. You, we see essentially the country fall into ruin. Even the elites suffer really significantly to the point where they have to sell their land that they, were, that they received from the encomienda system just to survive. So even the elite in Ecuador really come to feel the pinch during this depression. And this, of course provides a fertile ground for an independence movement. Because, of course, at the turn of the 19th century, so we're talking the 1810s, 1820s, the entirety of Latin America is gripped by the wave of independence movements and independence wars. And Ecuador... Is no exception but in Ecuador things take a bit of a different turn so of course we have Napoleon's Wars in Europe the Spanish monarchy is overthrown and that is what inspires a lot of Latin American independence leaders to take their chance and declare independence from Spain in Ecuador we do have that independence movement but the movement that actually comes to power is a pro Spanish movement so instead of the pro-independence elite coming to power. We have loyalist forces essentially reject what's happening in Europe. They reject Napoleon's, you know, revolutionary wars against Spain and the rest of the monarchies in Europe, and they declare that they still recognise the Spanish monarchy as the rightful leader of Ecuador. And this is where we begin to see... Ecuador sort of take form as its own country because in the rest of the, in the rest of the continent you have Peru and Colombia, Venezuela, Mexico, you have people who are looking to establish sovereign nations. In Ecuador that's not the case because the loyalists are able to assume control. This doesn't last forever. Of course, when the loyalists take control, they are very brutal against the pro independence fighters. There's, you know, essentially mass pogroms against independence leaders. They continue to persecute indigenous people, African slaves, the Zambos. And eventually, eventually, with the help, I should say, of Simon Bolivar and the Bolivarian army coming from Venezuela and Colombia, the pro independence Ecuadorians are able to overthrow the loyalists and establish Ecuador as a territory of Gran Colombia. So we've mentioned Gran Colombia in previous interviews. That is, of course, the territory that combined Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, a little bit of Peru, and a little bit of the Guyanas as well. So, you know, this was the sort of emancipatory project that Simon Bolivar had for the continent. Of course, it only reached this territory, but that was a really vast amount of land. And they, of course, were trying to establish a country that was going to defend the interests of Latin America, that was going to defend the interests of all people in the territory, and that was going to become an economic nationalist sort of country that would defend control over its own resources um, and that would reject foreign interference. And Ecuador comes to constitute a part of this union.
1: Where do the Galapagos Islands feature at this
0: time? At this time, um, the Galapagos Islands are actually still a territory of Spain. So even though Ecuador becomes or mainland Ecuador, I should say, becomes integrated into Gran Colombia, the Galapagos Islands are still a territory of Spain because prior to this point, the Galapagos were a separate entity under the Spanish empire. They were a special zone and they weren't actually part of Ecuador in terms of the colonial makeup of the country. And even before that, um, there were indigenous communities in the Galapagos Islands prior to Spanish colonization They traded with Ecuadorian civilizations on the mainland, but they also traded with Colombian civilizations and Peruvian civilizations. There wasn't actually a tangible link yet between Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands. And this this is what I was saying before, that Ecuador, not only the idea of Ecuador as a country, but even the territory of Ecuador has been a disputed question for quite a long time. Eventually, in 1832, um, so so we're talking a, a decade after Ecuador has been a part of Gran Colombia, Ecuador does lay claim to the Galapagos and annexes it because Spain, for all intents and purposes, just loses control. They've lost the rest of the continent and they just don't have the manpower to continue patrolling the Galapagos Islands. And they weren't particularly, you know, there were no resources there really. So... Ecuador does annex the Galapagos Islands as a, as a territory of Ecuador in 1832, and it essentially becomes a penal colony um, for political prisoners and other people opposing, you know, the different regimes that come to power in the wake of the dissolution of Gran Colombia. I'll just mention this whole period, from eight, really from 1822, when Ecuador becomes part of Gran Colombia, and 1832, when the Galapagos... I part of Ecuador um, it's a really, really brutal time for Ecuador, because Ecuador is on the border of Gran Colombia and Peru. And Peru and Gran Colombia actually have a number of territorial disputes and conflicts in the years after independence. And one of them is exactly this question of Ecuador, because of course, Peru, Peru's claim to Ecuador is that it was part of the Viceroyalty of Lima in the Spanish period. So they say, well, Ecuador is actually a territory of Peru. It shouldn't be its own country. But of course, on the other side, you have Simón Bolívar and then the other leaders of Gran Colombia saying, well, hang on a second, Actually, Ecuador has, has had its own sort of resistance against the Spanish, that it's had its own sort of development within that independence war period, and that they joined Gran Colombia willingly because it was Simón Bolívar who liberated them. It wasn't Peru. So there's been this whole back and forth and these wars between Peru and Gran Colombia over this territory. Ecuador. So Ecuador in that period is totally ravaged by war. It's it's a depressed country. It's incredibly unstable because you have all these different forces vying for control. You have people who want Ecuador to remain a part of Gran Colombia, essentially defend the status quo. You have other parts of the elite who want Ecuador to be absorbed into Peru. The various, you know, they have their own economic interests with the elite in Lima. And then you have a third group that is essentially saying Ecuador should be its own country, that we have the chance to make our own independent nation in between Peru and Gran Colombia. This, almost by accident, is what ends up happening because, of course, Gran Colombia collapses. The elite in Ecuador have really no control over this. This sort of happens over in in Bogotá, in Colombia, and in Caracas, in Venezuela, and the tremor, the aftershock, hits Ecuador, and Ecuador is all of a sudden left by itself. In this immediate post-war and post-Gran Colombia period, we have Peru taking its opportunity. They see that Ecuador is weak now. They see that Gran Colombia doesn't exist, that no state is really going to make the effort to defend Ecuador's independence, um, because they're of course all dealing with their own problems now, and Peru, invades Ecuador quite a few times. Um, In fact, we're talking about three or four times throughout the 1800s. And these are really debilitating wars. Look, sometimes only a couple of people die. Sometimes they're just border skirmishes that are considered wars officially. And you have, you know, 40, 50 soldiers die. Um, But there are other far more serious conflicts between Peru and Ecuador that see Peru get quite close to conquering the whole country. Because, of course, Peru has an immense amount of manpower compared to Ecuador. And it's been a more stable country for far longer than Ecuador has. Ecuador is still figuring out exactly what it's trying to be. They're still part of the elite that wants a union with Peru. This tends to divide itself again along the liberal-conservative axis that we see in other countries. So the conservatives are more in favour of a union with Peru, while the liberals are more concerned with trying to establish an independent Ecuadorian government. This liberal, conservative, pro-Peru, pro-independence dichotomy is broken quite briefly by Juan José Flores, um, who comes to power, you know, just after the Galapagos are annexed in 1832. Now, he's not actually Ecuadorian. He's a Venezuelan general um, who was an ally of Simón Bolívar during the independence wars. And he becomes essentially a military uh, military leader of Ecuador. Um, but he's very adamant that Ecuador will become an independent country in the vein of Gran Colombia. So it will have an independent foreign policy and defend air control of Ecuador's resources from external influences. And chiefly in this case, it is, of course, Peru. He spends a lot of money on maintaining and defending Ecuador's borders to the point where a lot of other, you know, really important services and reforms are essentially abandoned. There's not enough money and there's not enough resources to dedicate to anything else because Flores just needs the military to be as strong and well-equipped as it can be to fight off Peru. And this leads to, of course, a reaction. Now, chiefly, this reaction comes from liberals, but it also comes from the conservative business community who, who are seeing that, you know, Flores is not friendly to the oligarchy and Flores He is destroying the Ecuadorian economy, even though it is, for ostensibly quite a noble reason, to defend Ecuador's independence. And we have the March Uprising in the 1830s, and they're called Marfistas, the group that um, form an anti-Flores coalition, and he is overthrown. Flores goes into exile, um, in neighboring Colombia. And again, then we, we have this back and forth between liberals, conservatives. Flores occasionally attempts to return to power. He, he never quite manages. Um, and we, as I said, we have these intermittent wars and skirmishes with Peru. And all of these contradictions, the internal fighting between the elites. Now, the elites in Ecuador don't care at all about the everyday people they still maintain the encomienda system it goes by a different name now but you know serfdom is the reality for 85 90 percent of the ecuadorian nation So slavery still exists for all intents and purposes and you know you have all these contradictions you begin to see uprisings by indigenous people by african slaves the sort of internal conflict between the liberals and the conservatives in the government. And this all reaches a head in 1859, which is called El Año Terrible, the terrible year. And Ecuador is on the brink of anarchy. Ecuador is very close to collapse by this point. And we see, interestingly, what unifies all of these disparate forces is the leader of Guayaquil, which is the largest city and the wealthiest city in Ecuador, it's not the capital, but it is the wealthiest center in the country. We see the leader of Guayaquil, um, essentially sign an agreement with Peru to cede southern Ecuador to Peru to maintain his own control because of all the chaos in Ecuador. But also, there are financial interests in Guayaquil that, that, you know, see benefit in becoming a part of Peru, which is a more stable country and which is a more wealthy country. This sees a lot of Liberals and a lot of Conservatives unite and they actually invite Juan José Flores, the General, back from Colombia and together this coalition ousts the government in Guayaquil, um, the local government, and they push the Peruvian military out of southern Ecuador.
1: You've been listening to part one of the recent history of Ecuador in South America with Sasha gillis lekakis and Sasha will be back next week